Please turn in your Bibles uh, for a scripture reading today. It is found in the book of Romans, chapter 11, verses 1 or 11 to 24. It is also found on page 13 in your uh, bulletins. And I'd ask if you are willing and able uh, to stand for the reading of God's word. And as you do so, know that though the grass withers and the flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Romans 11, verses 11 to 24. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, How much more will their full inclusion mean? Now I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. And that is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness toward you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut off what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? These are the words of the living and the true God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Dan. We continue in our study through the book of Romans right now, and we are nearing the end of this section, chapters 9 through 11. Uh, Some have described this as as one of the most difficult sections of the scriptures of the book of Romans, for sure. Uh, But the section that we are seeing, God's righteousness in saving both Jews and Gentiles, and God's plan for Israel. We'll get into that some more next week, Lord willing. 
But here in verse 20, the word of God says, so do not become proud, but fear. I believe that every one of us is living in fear today. And here's what I mean by that. What or who you fear controls how you live, what you say, what you do, or what you don't do. And that may be another person, it may be even yourself, or it may be the Lord God. Here's a, here's a simple common example maybe to help you understand what I'm saying. So if I'm driving on the highway and I see a police car, I instinctively slow down. Why? Because of fear. In that moment, I have a fear of the police, uh, of the authority, the one who can justly punish me, and it changes my behavior. A simple common example maybe you can relate to. Now, if there are no police, many times when I'm driving, I'm not even aware of how fast I'm going. So who or what do I fear in those times? Most times I would probably say just myself. I'm driven by my desire to get wherever I'm going as fast as I can, or at least faster than the GPS says it will take me. So all of us are living in fear today, in the sense that what we fear controls how we live. And the reality is who or what you fear vacillates many times a day. And we know that God speaks to us through his word today, and he commands us, do not become proud, but fear. Who does he want us to fear? And in what way? And we find often in scripture the exhortation to not fear. Scriptures tell us, do not be afraid. Do not fear. But when scripture does tell us to fear, what's the common refrain? Fear the Lord. Fear the Lord. And one of the keys to living in the fear of the Lord, to fearing God in a way that honors him, in a way that controls our lives, what we do, what we don't do, what we say, is to note both the kindness and the severity of God. In verse 22, Paul says, note then, or pay attention to, the kindness and the severity of God. So, so Paul is telling us right there what to make of this passage. He's saying, this is the take-home lesson. Don't miss this point. Take note of the kindness and the severity of God. The kindness and the severity of God in both his judgment on those who reject him and also his salvation on those who receive him. So note both the grace of God and the wrath of God. Note the mercy of God and the justice of God. So that's what we aim to do this morning in our study of this passage of God's word. We want to note then the kindness and the severity of God in two main areas. First, in his ongoing plan of salvation for both Israel and the Gentiles. That's the main context of this passage. So that's what we'll note first. But then second, note the kindness and the severity of God in bringing you into his family. That we might marvel at the grace of God extended to us. That you would marvel at the grace of God extended to you personally. And then we'll close with a, a final word of hope. So first, note the kindness and severity of God in his ongoing plan 
of salvation. And we see this in verses 11 through 16. So verse 11 begins this section. So I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall. That stumbling is referring to Israel's rejection of the Messiah. Her rejection of Jesus Christ. And note, the question is not, did they stumble and fall? They did. The question is, did they stumble that they might fall? So Paul's indicating that there was a purpose in their stumbling. And that purpose was not that Israel would fall. God's purpose was not that Israel's fall would be complete, nor that it would be final. Remember, there was a remnant chosen by grace. So what was God's purpose? It was his gracious purpose. His gracious purpose and plan of salvation to save both Gentiles and Jews. Again, verse 11. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. So no, that wasn't the purpose. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? And then Paul says this again in verse 15. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? So what was the result? What was God's purpose in Israel's fall? Listen again to how Paul says this. If their trespass, if their fall, means riches for the world. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles. So Gentiles and the world are synonymous. If their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. So Israel's fall led to riches. It led to reconciliation for the world, for the Gentiles. God's purpose, the result of Israel's stumble, her rejection was that salvation came to the Gentiles, to the non-Jewish people. So in that day, there were two groups. There were Israel, and then there were the Gentiles. That's everyone, the whole world. So non-Jewish people, and since most of us here today are not Jewish, the salvation came to you and me as a result of what happened here. And beloved, this is God's ongoing plan. Think of the goodness of God, the kindness of God in this plan. God had made a covenant with Israel in the Old Testament. Salvation came to the Jews. And in Paul's day, much of Israel had rejected God's plan. They had rejected God's salvation. So God brought salvation to the Gentiles, to the rest of the world, with the intent That as more and more Gentiles are saved, Israel will see what is happening and be jealous and thus be saved. She will return to her God and her King and her Savior. And so more and more people will be brought into that covenant of salvation. They will enjoy the goodness and kindness of God. They will live and walk in the fear of the Lord to the glory of God. What a gracious plan. Then Paul says, if this is the result of Israel's fall, what is going to happen when Israel believes? Verse 12, if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? 
So the full inclusion of Israel. When all Israel is saved. This will not only be a great blessing for Israel. But for all the nations. So beloved note. The kindness. And the severity of God. And his ongoing plan of salvation. Now in noting this. Don't miss the kindness and severity of God and his response to Israel's fall. His response to the rejection of his chosen people. You might say, well, well, did God respond with severity? Yes, he did. He brought judgment on those who rejected Jesus. But even the design of that judgment, the aim of that severity, we might say, was our salvation was the salvation of the Gentiles. And then ultimately, circling back to the salvation of Israel. So note the kindness of God in this plan. Think of it. Note the kindness of God in his response to sin. His response to the fall, the failure, the rejection of his own people, Israel. Yes, there was severity. There was judgment. But there was also kindness. And I ask us, Where else can you find this in the world? And the answer is nowhere. In the world and every other religion, the only response to your failure, to your sin, is severity. There's no hope for forgiveness. There is no hope for salvation. One of the ways we can clearly see this today is in our cancel culture. Get on the wrong side of the gods of this age and you will be cast out with no hope for return. Don't fear the right people and they they will turn on you in a moment. Beloved, you cannot find the kindness of God anywhere else in response to your failure, to your weakness, to your brokenness, to your guilt, to your shame, to your sin to your sorrows, your suffering, your rebellion, your rejection, your wickedness, your evil? What do you find in the world? You find either denial, because honestly, the world cannot deal with the wickedness of the human heart. We have no answer for the wickedness of the human heart, the evil that is in within. We can't, the world cannot deal with the true depths of our sin or our suffering. The world has no answer for that. The world's answer to that is self-medication. That's it. So either you find denial or you find severity. For there is no salvation outside of God. No true comfort in life or in death. There's not forgiveness. There's only punishment. And if you ever do hear of forgiveness in the world, it's not for the benefit of the offender. It's simply for the mental health of the one offended against. So you'll be told to forgive for what it can do for you. To free you from the bitterness that might be eating away at you. Not for what it brings to the one who actually needs forgiveness. But we all need forgiveness. And beloved, what do you find in Christ? You find forgiveness for your benefit. He will take your sins upon himself. He will be cast out so that you can be brought in. He will remove the barrier so now you can enjoy peace and fellowship with God. He invites you into the relationship that he has always enjoyed with his heavenly father. He wants to share that with you. 
And beloved, when you enjoy this, part of God's design in that is that you would make Israel jealous in order to bring them back to God. Paul says that twice, verse 11. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as, or here's the reason, to make Israel jealous. And then in verse 14, Paul says, I magnify my ministry to the Gentiles. Why? In order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. You know, when we hear the word jealous, normally we think that's a bad thing, right? That's not the kind of jealousy Paul's talking about here. Not that negative emotion or action that we so often warn against. The idea is that Israel would see the blessing that God offers to all. The blessing of his salvation. And she would see the beauty and the glory and the wonder of that in God's people. And she would desire it for herself. That Israel would see the promises of God being enjoyed by sinners saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And she would want to share in the wonder and the blessing of so great a salvation. Now when we hear this, don't we have to ask ourselves, are we living in a way that would make Israel jealous? Are we living in a way that would make our non-believing neighbors and friends and co-workers and relatives jealous for what we enjoy? Are we making them jealous by our enjoyment of the Savior, the promised Messiah as individuals, but also as, as a church family together in this community? Do we enjoy God? Do we delight in Him? Do we trust Him? Do we sing his praises and tell of all his wonders? Are we glad and do we rejoice in him? May God give us that joy that would show forth his glory and others would want to share in that great salvation. In verse 16, Paul says, If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. If the root is holy, so are the branches. And the dough and the root, I believe, point us to the patriarchs, the fathers of the faith, Abraham in particular. It's a reference to God's covenant promise to Abraham. God comes to Abraham and he makes a promise, I will make a nation of you. And that nation was Israel. And Israel, the Jews, they are a special people to God because he chose them to be his own. Not because of anything in them, because of what he was building them to be. And it started with Abraham. And he did indeed make them a great nation. And God is not done with his people. He has not given up on Israel. So Paul says, if the dough, the root is holy, that means if the dough, the root, Abraham, the promise, if if they are set apart for God, they belong to God, God set Abraham apart and the patriarchs apart for himself. If he did that, so too then what grows from the dough, what grows from the root is also set apart for God. Now this does not mean that every child of Abraham, every Israelite, or even every child of believers today is saved. The point here is that God will be faithful to his promises. He is not finished with Israel. Many more among Israel are yet to be saved. And we'll have more on that next week. 
but also many more among the nations will be saved. And beloved, this is why Jesus has not come back yet. Because he is still filling the whole world with his glory. He is still gathering in his lost sheep this very day. Gathering and making a people for his name. Israel did not stumble that they might fall. Instead, God is actually working out his eternal plan through their stumbling to save the nations and Israel. And beloved, this is what the history of the world is all about. This is God's world. And he is working out his plan. And this is what is happening all over the world. God is displaying his righteousness and saving Jews and Gentiles. This is what life is all about. It's not about who will win the World Series. Go Phillies. It's not about who will win the Super Bowl or a college football championship. It's not about will my child be the best athlete on their team. Will they earn the scholarship to college? It's not about how I can advance in my job or get the most money. This life is not about how you can make a name for yourself. It's not about your own personal comfort and peace and security. This life is not about expressive individualism, that you would be affirmed in whatever you believe or or feel. It's not about the fulfillment of your desires and dreams, no matter how good they may be whether that would be for marriage or for children or for health or success. Some of these things are good desires from God. Some of them are good gifts from God that lead us or are meant to lead us to thank him and to praise him. But none of these are primary. None of these are the center, the very center of life and history. And if they are or if they become that for you, you're worshiping an idol. You're bowing down to the creature rather than the creator. For the scriptures teach us that all of God's good gifts in life are subservient to knowing Christ and making him known. To fearing God and proclaiming Christ. What is life about? Why are we here? It's to worship the holy God. To glorify God and enjoy him forever. We are made witnesses and ambassadors for Christ for the sake of his name. Is that the banner that flies over everything in your life? That's God's design for us. May God work that in us. May it work it in me. So let us know the kindness and severity of God and his ongoing plan of salvation. Beloved, if you come to Christ, you will find kindness. A kindness kindness like no other. You will find mercy and grace, and forgiveness, and salvation, and reconciliation, and restoration, and shalom. That is what you will find in Christ. If you do not come to Christ, if you reject God's Messiah as much of Israel did, you will find severity. That severity will not be worse than what you deserve. God's severity is never out of control but it will be perfectly appropriate to exactly what you deserve. We could say it will be worse than you think it will be because we have no right sense of the holiness or the wrath of God. 
But that severity will be perfectly appropriate to exactly what you deserve for your sinful rebellion against your creator, your king, and your savior. The savior of the world who is holy, holy, holy. It's my sincere prayer and desire that all of you have come to know and experience the kindness of God. And that if you have not, you will do so today. Today is the day of salvation. It can happen in your life, right here, this very moment, if you come to Christ. This brings us to our second point. Note the kindness and severity of God in bringing you into his family. You who are children of God. Let's, let's read again, starting at verse 17 through verse 22. Paul writes, But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it's not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. So here Paul says that branches were broken off because of their unbelief. He's referring to the Israelites who've rejected the Messiah. And he refers to the severity of God's judgment. And this is indeed a warning for us. So we must note this. We note the severity of God in breaking off the natural branches, those of Israel who rejected him. Those of Israel who did not believe in Jesus were cut off. They may have been sons of Abraham by birth, but they were not sons of Abraham by faith. And so they were not true children of God, true sons and daughters of God. And the same is true for children of believers today. Being born into a Christian home is a great blessing from God, but it does not make you a child of God yourself. It does not guarantee your salvation. Being baptized as a child of believing parents does not make you a child of God. It does not make you a Christian, though it is good and right to apply the sign of the covenant to your children. And Lord willing, next week we'll have the joy of doing that with three of our covenant children here. But the scriptures make clear that it is by faith in Jesus Christ alone that anyone is grafted in that anyone receives the kindness of God and is made a child of God. And so what we are to note about our place in the family of God is the kindness of God in saving us. Do you note that? Do you marvel at the grace of God that has been extended to you through Jesus Christ? His kindness in bringing you into his family. The scriptures teach us that God is just and right to punish our sin. This means that every single person deserves to only receive severity from God. You know, I don't know if we really understand that. 
If we really grasp that, and, and the problem is we don't understand that because we don't see clearly the depth of our own sin and we don't see clearly the, the beauty or the heights of the holiness of God. Amen. Really, in our eyes, the gap between the holiness of God and our sinfulness is very small. In our eyes, we bring it down to maybe where it's almost non-existent. And many just believe that God will just receive anyone and everyone into heaven regardless of their response to him. But in reality, that gap is infinite. The holiness of God and the sinfulness of man is a gap that cannot be bridged except in one way. And that is through the sinless, spotless, undefiled, eternal Son of God, the Lamb of God. See, in God's kindness, instead of giving us the just and right punishment that we deserve, he has shown us mercy. He has been kind to undeserving sinners. And the way that God is kind to undeserving sinners is through his son, Jesus Christ. This is the only way that anyone can receive kindness from God is if Jesus Christ stands in your place and shields you from the severity, the wrath of God. Jesus himself has said, that he will willingly suffer that in your place so that you can receive his kindness, his love, the favor that he has won and that he deserves and that he has forever. So Paul gives us some guidelines and how we're to think about this great salvation. He says, do not be arrogant. That makes perfect sense now, right? When you think about it. Paul says, do not be arrogant. Do not become proud. When you understand the gospel, It's clear there is no room for self-righteousness. But Paul says it. He warns, don't be arrogant, don't be proud. There is no room for thinking that we are better than others. He's saying to the Gentiles in his congregation, don't think you're better than those who are not saved. Don't think you're better than the Israelites who've been broken off. He's saying to us today, don't think you're better than those who have turned away from the faith, those who today may be deconstructing their faith and turning from Christ. And here's where where we have this command from God. Do not become proud. Do not become proud, but fear. Walk and live in the fear of the Lord. It's to be the Lord alone who is the one who controls how we live, what we say, what we do, what we don't do. And Paul says we are to fear because if God did not spare the natural branches, if he didn't spare Israel, his covenant people, he will not spare us if we do not believe. Now, we need to understand this. It might sound like Paul wants us to be afraid that we could lose our salvation. That's not his intent. That's not my intent. Paul does not want us to be afraid that we might lose our salvation. If this is your only Sunday that you ever come to proclamation, you might get that sense a little bit. But if if your steady diet week after week after week, if you come to proclamation... It will be the assurance of God's grace and his love for you through the gospel. But we must also hear this warning. We must not miss it. We must not discount it. But Paul's not trying to make us afraid that we would lose our salvation. That would go against everything that he's already said in Romans. Right? If you've been with us, he has made it clear that once you are united to Christ, you're united to him forever. It's a one-way road. You cannot go back. We have seen that. He has made it clear there is nothing in all of creation 
that can ever separate God's children from the love of God. No one can bring a charge against us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No one can condemn us. We've seen that. But what he is saying is, this assurance that we have is not, absolutely not, a cause for pride. And it is also absolutely not a license to sin. And it's not a license to be lazy about your faith. In fact, the very opposite is the case. God's assurance, his promise, he will hold you fast. It comes with a warning. It comes with positive commands that you are to obey. You know, it seems like today in the church, we can't even talk about striving to be holy or making every effort to obey God's commands because then you'll be charged with legalism. An encouragement to obey God is not legalism. It is faithfulness to your Savior. So this warning comes with positive commands. You are to obey You have a responsibility to make use of the means of grace that God has given you in his kindness. So Paul says, beloved, you've been saved. Now you're to continue in the kindness of God. How? Stand fast through faith. So beloved, when God in his kindness brings you into his family, he does indeed promise to keep you forever. You will not be cut off. Praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Now, Also hear this, as God is keeping you, he also commands you to actively seek him, to be proactive in growing your faith. So the life of a new creature in Christ is not a passive one. If you are passive, if you are slothful in zeal, that's coming in Romans chapter 12, Lord willing we'll get there unless Jesus comes first. But if you are passive, if you are slothful in zeal, you will soon find that the fear of others or the fear of yourself is controlling your life rather than the fear of the Lord. And can I ask you to pray for me that the fear of the Lord would rule my life, not the fear of my own desires or the fear of man. I need you to pray that for me. If you want to stand fast through faith, you must make use of the means that God has given you to grow your faith. And we know those to be, namely, primarily, the word, sacraments, and prayer. It's not hard. God has given us simple things. We want something more fantastic, don't we? We want quick fixes Immediate change. But this is what it has been from the beginning of history. The word, sacraments, and prayer. And the first, the foremost place where you receive the blessings of these gifts from God is in gathered worship on the Sabbath day, the Lord's day, right here every Sunday. Listen to me, beloved. It will be hard. It will be extremely hard. For the devil to come in and tempt you and draw you away and turn you to unbelief and cut you off if you gather together with God's people to worship the Lord each Sunday. You will make it very difficult on yourself to turn to unbelief and be cut off if you are here every week. But if you regularly miss Lord's Day worship, 
or if God forbid, in this culture in which we live, in which the stream is flowing so hard, it's like a riptide taking you out to sea, away from giving priority to gather worship. There will be demands on your time that will get you in that flow. And if you regularly miss the Lord's Day worship, if you give priority to the things of the world above Lord's Day worship, do not be surprised if your love for God grows cold or if you are tempted to unbelief. It will be hard for you to turn to unbelief and be cut off if you develop and maintain regular healthy habits of engaging in the word of God and prayer on your own throughout the rest of the week. But if you neglect the word of God, if you neglect prayer, you will be in danger of falling into sin, in danger of thinking and living like an unbeliever. If the scriptures are not a steady part of your diet, if engaging with God in communion and prayer is not a steady part of your diet, don't be surprised if you start to think like the world that does not know God. It will happen. So beloved, while God has been kind in saving his children and he desires for each of us to enjoy the assurance of this salvation, there is a real warning here. If God cut off the natural branches because of their unbelief, he will not spare you if you do not continue in his kindness. God will not spare anyone who does not have faith in Jesus Christ. So note the warning, note the kindness and the severity of God in bringing you into his family, you who have trusted in Jesus, and then, beloved, continue in his kindness by feeding your faith in Christ here at the feast every Sunday and each day on your own. Well, finally, let us note the kindness and severity of God in this closing note of hope, verse 23 and 24. Paul concludes this section. He says, and even they, speaking again of Israel, if they do not continue in their unbelief, they'll be grafted in, for God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these natural branches be grafted back into their own olive tree? So in this closing section, God confirms that he has the power to save anyone. He has the power to turn anyone from unbelief to belief. So there is still great hope for Israel. For if God has saved the Gentiles, if he has saved you, there's still great hope. Because we, we who are not from Israel, we've been grafted in contrary to nature. How much more will Israel be saved? Beloved, there's hope for Israel There's hope for all nations, for all people. For God brings all people in, both Israel and Gentile, through Jesus Christ alone. And Jesus has made these two one. The one tree of God, the one family of God. And let me close with this, beloved. The place to note the kindness and severity of God most clearly, most powerfully, is at the cross of our Savior, Jesus Christ. There we see the severity of God. Jesus Christ, the eternal beloved son of God, was cut off so that you could be grafted in. Hallelujah, Lamb of God, for sinners slain. For sinners 
slain. The severity of God. But this, this shows us how awful, how serious sin is. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus himself suffered the severity of God in his own body on the tree. He died for our sins and it's his blood alone that can cleanse us. And it's there we see the kindness of God since all our sin was placed on Jesus. There's no more left in our account. We are truly forgiven and free and now he clothes us with the righteousness of Christ. And beloved, when you believe this good news, the gospel, when you note the kindness and the severity of God, you will not be proud, but you will fear the Lord. Remember, every one of you is living in fear today. The fear of someone or something is controlling what you do. It may be another person. It may be yourself. Maybe you've exalted yourself on the throne. It may be your Lord and God your creator, king, and savior. But if you want to live in the fear of the Lord today, you must take note of the kindness and the severity of God. Jesus Christ has truly come. He has died. He has risen. He has ascended to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, and he is coming again. And every eye will see him. That day will be a day of utter terror for you such as you have never known if you do not know Christ. But beloved, if you've come to Christ, that day will be a day of utter rejoicing and celebration, such as you have never known. So which one it will be for you depends now today on whom you fear. So do not become proud, but fear. Fear the Lord and fear him alone. And if you're living with an awareness of this kindness, the severity of God, you will indeed come to God through his son, Jesus Christ, the only savior. And you will not only know, but you will have the eternal God, the God who's holy, holy, holy. You will have him as your loving heavenly father. And as you fear him in life, you give him the awe, the reverence, the honor that is due his holy name. You need not ever fear him in death. Amen.